0: We build stories around the knowing. And I think that tends to happen as we have the full range of the human experience throughout our lives. And I think there's a conscious decision that you have to make as an adult to reconnect with your essence, therefore, reconnecting with your intuition.
1: Welcome to the Intuitively Aligned Podcast. A place for changemakers to cultivate their intuition and foster greater impact in their everyday lives. I am your guide, Sydney Bloom. Hi, friends. Welcome to today's episode. Our guest is Nagin Serafi, a multidisciplinary creative who dreams things into being. With over 15 years of experience leading a variety of projects, organizations, and teams, Nagin's work stretches across diverse industries, like arts and culture, education, tech, and wellness. Her commitment both in her professional and personal life is to explore every possible realm. She is driven by a vision of the future that is built on equity and collective liberation, and she's dedicated to making this new world a reality. An award-winning director and community builder, Nagin is a student of life, a believer in magic, a lover of nature, and a teacher of transformation. Nagin, thank you so much for being here. I'm really excited for our conversation today. Thank you for having me. I was wondering if to start off, you could share a little bit about who you are, where you come from, and who your people are.
0: Mm, Great question. Lately, my one-line bio has been, I dream things into being. And I think it really encompasses who I am. And I was born and raised in Iran. And my people are the people of the Middle East and North Africa. And I've been living in Toronto for the past 28 years. And I I do feel like this is also home in some ways. I feel most connected to people who care about the land, people who care about the past, people who invest in building the future and people who want to create change, really creative cultural leaders who want to create change. I love
1: that. And I love the one-liner bio too. Can you share a little bit about how you understand your own intuition and when you first tapped into it?
0: Yeah. I I can, that's a good place to start. I do think of intuition as our first intelligence. And I know there's a book Mm -hmm. about intuition called first intelligence, but I think that like there's been this rebranding of intuition as like a feeling, or it's been a bit woo woo. Mm -hmm. I see it as like basic instinct and sometimes that basic instinct is more connected to our survival and sometimes that basic instinct is is like wisdom and it's ancestral and it allows us to have foresight it allows us to hear what's not being said it's allowed us to see the things that aren't visible and to really tap into a vibration that is always there but that is not as tangible as so many of the other things that we have access to. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And the, I would say in terms of when I first tapped into my intuition, I was a very intuitive child in that. I, I actually do think intuition in some ways is like inherent in all of us. And I think the way we cultivate it is by paying attention is by noticing both what's happening within and what's happening externally. And I felt like I was always really tuned in as a child and I could feel and sense what was happening in a conversation, in a room, even sometimes I think outside of the physical spaces that I occupied. And I didn't really fully understand like what that was or what it meant. But I think over time, as I got a little bit older and and stepped into youth, I understood and felt intuition to be this guiding force that is not coming necessarily from me, but through me. It opens up something within me that allows me to connect to something bigger than myself. And, And I do think we all have access to that.
1: I completely agree, allowing for something that's greater than ourselves, whatever that might be, or whatever we might be tapping into or receiving from, for me also feels more accurate to the sensation. Mm-hmm. And that doesn't even need to be about spirituality, right? Yeah,
0: it's interesting, because I see intuition as data, like there is a spiritual element to it. I think especially if you identify as someone who practices spirituality or sees the world through that lens amongst others but i'm also a very data-driven person i love science i'm geeky in that way and i love the idea of intuition as data again because it's inherent like it's not something that i necessarily even have to learn it's something yes. that I'm born with
1: yes And to what you were saying before, too, it's removing it from that otherness that I think we ascribe to woo-woo and spirituality and all of that, right? And placing it right inside of each and every one of us as this resource that's available, giving those data points. So Mm -hmm. yeah, that resonates a lot. I want to go back to what you mentioned before about as a child, having this knowing of what was happening in rooms that you were not even inhabiting. Can you say a little bit more about what you meant by that?
0: Yeah, I think when you tune in and when you start to notice and pay attention to the people and to the world around you, Mm -hmm. you kind of create these I almost feel like it's, I can only describe it as like the mycelium network, Mm -hmm. when we have that deep connection and when we have that presence together and when we are like noticing in, when we do share conversation spaces, interactions, we create this invisible line between you and I, that then also connects me to whoever you're connected with. And so I think that when, when that level of interconnection happens, you don't necessarily need to be in the same space to feel what might be happening somewhere else. Mm -hmm. And I remember distinctly when I was six or seven years old and my mom got, it was just me and my mom at home. And she got a phone call and she didn't say much. I was just like, like you could tell that she was distraught yeah and i just knew that something terrible had happened to my cousin mm-hmm. who had gotten into a car accident and i'll just i just remember that moment as like i didn't really understand the concept of the fragility of human life or the fact that people die or what it means to even be in like a terrible accident and like the difference between the mind, body, spirit, you know, I, it was, I was Mm -hmm. too young to know that, but I, but I knew that something had occurred. That was like a big rupture, Mm -hmm. not only in, in my cousin's life, but also in our family. And I think that has partly to do with just how interconnected and interdependent, we all were as a family back in Iran. And and so it kind of goes back to the mycelium thing where it's like, of course I felt that. Of course I was tuned into that. We spent every weekend together. Yeah.
1: Yeah, your family is, I mean, and it's not just family, but the people who we are close with, who we trust, who we love, who we are sharing life with become the core ecosystem that we're a part of. Mm -hmm. And I, I feel like you've actually put language to a way that I also experience my intuition that is sometimes hard to describe because people often talk about psychic sensing and the different clairs and how you can feel it. But I think what you're describing taps into this much bigger piece. It's not about how we sense it. It's actually about what happens when you live in interrelation with others. And it would be very short-sighted to think that all the knowing and information we have about each other is what's present when you're occupying the same room as someone else versus the more invisible electrical threads I know that there is science around this that talks about how being that we're made out of water as human beings and that our hearts run through an electrical current, right? Like we are electrical beings and we actually do physically and emotionally sense things about Mm -hmm. one another across time and space. Mm -hmm. And it shouldn't actually shock us that that's the mechanism of our life force.
0: Oh, absolutely. I mean, speaking of water, you just reminded me of, of two things that I hadn't connected before, but I'm connecting now. One is that there hasn't been a ton of research on this, but the the fact that, or the, maybe maybe the the idea that there's like data in water. Mm. And mm-hmm. I remember a few years ago, friends sharing with me that like all the water that's on the Earth is all the water that's ever been on the Earth. Yeah. And I just and, I, and and so when I put the two and two together, I'm like, of course there's data in the water. Right. <laughs> like historical ancestral data in the water. And I'm showering in it and swimming in it and drinking it. And and that is like it's being recycled constantly. And it just moves through generation after generation after generation. So it's it's just fascinating to think
1: about that absolutely and there is concrete evidence that shows that what we expose water to whether it's loving words or beautiful music or hateful words and violent sounds actually impacts the crystalline structure that it takes on too that's all of the research of dr emoto To me, that that links as well to what you're saying. I don't know if anyone has put together all of the research on on the ways in which water holds data, Mm -hmm. but I've certainly seen different aspects of that science Mm -hmm. that, at least as far as I'm concerned, provides enough evidence that we could be doing so much more to leverage not just the love that we bring to water but then how we make sacred that resource and then also what it means to be beings that are made of water
0: Mm -hmm. yeah it's so funny when you were saying that I was like oh this would be such a fun research project and then in my mind I was like oh this is not like you take water into in, in, into a lab and you like try to extract the data from it. If this is like you take a bunch of mushrooms and you like go sit by the water and then you like <laughs> unlock the the data in the water. You like the same way the the mycelium and the mushroom like also hold our ancestry, right? So it's like, yep. I don't think it's a an intellectual exercise. I think it's it's actually being connected to nature in a way that doesn't require technology. It's like the intuition is a technology that allows us to connect with past, present, future through nature.
1: Yes. Yes. And I was just thinking nature is the technology. If you think of the mycelial network or the fungal Mm. systems, that is technology, not different in a way from Vulture medicine, which we were talking Mm -hmm. about on the episode with Larissa, look at the ways in which fungal systems take rotten, dying, decomposing matter Mm -hmm. and literally weave it into new life that then feeds the entire ecosystem around it. How could that technology not open us up to a deeper understanding of our own interconnected being? with the world that we're a part of oh
0: I mean it's it's unassailable it's just so powerful to know that we have these tools and I actually like the way you put it as like nature as technology as opposed to intuition as technology but it's fascinating to me that we have the power and potential to just like actually use the technology that's available to all of us
1: Yes. 100%. 100%. And it's a very interesting path to be on and realize that not all human beings see themselves in that way or see that there's this resource that's available that's within them and within the natural world that we're a part of. I, f- I actually get a lot of energy from that. Like I'm excited to wake up in the morning and think about how can I help build this bridge that helps You know, all people start to understand what is latent within them and within the worlds that they're a part of. Mm -hmm. I think our consciousness is this deep remembering. And we're even, even with all of the truths that we might think we know and feel like we've awakened to, Mm -hmm. there's this everyday ritual of reminding ourselves of those truths that we hold dear in our heart that are just so easy to forget when we get immersed in this very human material world so yeah. there's a lot of practice <laughs> that, that both I want to do but also that I see us as humanity needing to really take on
0: oh for sure and, and I like that you refer to it as the remembering that
1: really resonates so will you share a little bit more about how how your relationship with your intuition evolved
0: yeah I think that I would say from like maybe six years old to like 16, it was very potent. I I really felt connected to that part of me that was paying attention and was, Mm -hmm. was gathering the, I call the, the silent and invisible data that was around me. Mm -hmm. And, and then I did become very disconnected for quite some time I did I, th- I think that sometimes the events of life can disconnect to us from our own essence and our intuitions are so entangled with our essence and so yeah. when we disconnect from our essence I think we we naturally disconnect from our intuition and not in like a literal way. Like I think, because it's like, it's actually a part of me. I can't, I can't sever it, but I can disconnect from it in a way that ends the conversation. It was really dialed down. I think partly because I felt overwhelmed. I didn't know that I had the power to dial up or dial down. Like I, Mm -hmm. I think after like twenty nine thirty, i i started to turn it back up a little bit at a time and i think what also happens as we age is we become better storytellers mm. both a great thing and can be challenging in that we might feel or know or experience something and and there's that like that innate Essential experience of it, the feeling that you have, the knowing. And yeah. then, for whatever reason, I think it's a very individual thing. We build stories around the knowing. And I think that tends to happen as we have the full range of the human experience throughout our lives. And I think there's a conscious decision that you have to make as an adult to reconnect with your essence, therefore reconnecting with your intuition.
1: And in terms of the kind of storytelling you're describing, are you talking about stories that feed us a false truth? I feel like that could be interpreted a couple of different ways. Yeah,
0: I think I think it's meaning making. I think it's creating narratives to protect ourselves and or others. I yeah. think it's trying to fit an invisible, intangible knowing into something that makes sense rationally and tangibly that's what I mean by storytelling
1: that's very helpful and I also think it's part of what makes it confusing especially for young adults that are trying to find their place in the world at least in my experience but I'm curious to know if this is true for you too Mm. there are people who show up as helpers whether they are teachers or instructors or coaches or colleagues or bosses or what have you right and the helpers sometimes actually the helpers very often guide us into stories and constructs that have served them in a different time and which they think is serving our best interest but which actually in my opinion undermines some of those essential qualities that can be our deep superpowers. Mm
0: -hmm.
1: I, for example, can think of a coach that I worked with in my 20s who was a lovely human being who I brought on to offer me some guidance around navigating a career transition. And she brought me through a series of exercises to clarify the different quote-unquote buckets that I would want to pursue in my career So I had maybe said, oh, I'd like to explore writing and I'd love to do some research and I would love to lead social programs and I would love to do this and that. And she had me frame all these different buckets and basically at the end said, okay, well, now you should choose. And I feel grateful that in the moment I had the insight and self-knowledge to say, actually, I'm not going to choose. I can now see the whole. Mm -hmm. and." I see myself moving on a continuum where sometimes maybe the individual micro level of these passions is what I'm focusing on. And then other times I see myself in more of a macro role where I'm collaborating and co-designing community programs and, you know, designing transformational policy
0: change. As you were speaking, I was thinking about like the difference between intuition and projection. Mm. Mm -hmm. whether it's our own projections or projections of other people. I think that, I think we can get really confused if we overthink it. And I think that with anything, I think that like the mind, the thinking mind has a role and it's a great tool. And I think that it is very easily programmed. I think it's really valuable. But I think if we're not going through a constant process of learning and unlearning and doing and undoing and programming and reprogramming, the mind can become a rigid box. Mm -hmm. And whereas I, like I said, I see intuition more as like, it's fluid and it's, it just is. And I don't think it's like a voice that you hear like a thinking voice it's it's like a nervous system response and so i think one way to undo and unravel some of the stories and programming conditioning and reconnect with our essential self is is to really understand the signals between the knowing and the thinking and the feeling and the projecting and the remembering And the programming, like really, really understand like where what is where is this rooted in? And I think that maybe brings us back to awareness again, where it's like the noticing of the self, paying attention to the self and creating that shared language within yourself.
1: So how have you practiced that? Because I I agree with what you're saying. Mm
0: -hmm. And I
1: also think that a lot of people who are opening up into this deeper awareness, get stuck at a point like what you're describing. They want it intellectually. We understand we want to move into deeper awareness and repatterning. How have you actually practiced that yourself? What does it look like?
0: I think for me, it's been, I mean, it sounds kind of cliche, but like writing for me is such a powerful practice to reconnect with my essence because Mm -hmm. when you start writing the first few pages it's just the mind it's Mm -hmm. just the mind and then i find there's a point at which like i'll write and write and write and write and it's like stream of consciousness and then there's a quietness and sometimes it lasts a moment and sometimes it's a bit longer and sometimes it catalyzes like a, a meditation. But the quietness is where I try to meet myself. And in order to get to the quietness, my practice is writing.
1: And when you, when you notice the quietness beginning, are you still writing?
0: I, I, I want to no, know, no, I give it a moment. Sometimes I give it a moment and there's like I don't know if you experience this where it's like you go into like you finally are like, ah, oh, the quietness when you, you, you've landed there. Mm-hmm. And sometimes it's actually just quiet. And then sometimes the downloads start to come in. Yes. But it's not the thinking mind. You can feel the difference between the first three pages of writing where it was the thinking mind going, going, going. And then there's like the quietness and then, and then the, and then the downloads start to come in. And that's when I think it's like you've you've been managed to open up the portal because you've removed all of the layers and barriers between you and that opening.
1: Yes. I just love that you're naming the stillness as a step in the process because I know for myself that's where so much healing and integration happens mm-hmm. to be able to stop and rest in that place and not have any force being exerted even though maybe it sounds ironic to say that that one would be exerting force to receive downloads but I do think there's more movement even if the force is receiving that's still an action as opposed to the being which which is where I think the nervous system regulation can really happen and regenerate itself
0: yeah absolutely What you shared just also kind of reminded me of like the practice of just you want to reconnect with your essence and your intuition, leave your phone at home and go hang out with the trees and go sit by a river or a ravine, go touch the rocks and put your hands in the earth. I think that we at this point in human history, we are straddling two very distinct worlds. And one is more, I think it's more in tune with our natural essence. And the other is asking us to evolve into something else. And so I, 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 I feel for us. I feel for us in this moment in time where we've got like, the trees and the land and the earth and the wildfires and and the water and the climate and all of the the very tangible earthy things that are happening. And at the same time, there is an AI revolution and we are being asked and prompted and forced to
1: evolve, to reimagine what it means to be human. Have you started the reimagining for yourself? And if so, what does that look like for you?, absolutely. I think that i'm
0: I'm I have, this is it's gonna sound so weird. I am very much rooted in this world, like I'm a very earthy person, and and I also simultaneously am endlessly fascinated with the possible futures ahead of us. And that includes all of the technologies that are being introduced. And I think that for me, I see my existence as like a bridge between these worlds. And also I think my goal is to become a radical collaborator. And I think That in order for us to reimagine what it means to be human and what the future could become, there needs to be a harmonious collaboration between nature and technology. And somewhere in between these two things, there's going to be the
1: next us. Mm. Do you have advice for people who want to start to think in this way about those multiple futures or who maybe are feeling a lot of fear around what's happening with AI and technology? I
0: don't know if I would say I have advice. What I can share is that if we want to feel a little bit more comfort in our futures, I th- think we can look to our past. And when I look to the past, I see the full range of experience, you know, everything from death and destruction to love and liberation. And I would say that if we look at like the long arc of human evolution and human history, I think we are trending towards a better world my only caveat is that it might not look and feel like anything that any of us can imagine in this moment. Mm -hmm. And it might not include us in a way that we are accustomed to. We have made ourselves the superior beings of earth. We collectively have acknowledged, we don't have true tangible evidence of Other life, although it would be impossible for there not to be. Mm -hmm. But I think that there's a future in which we are not superior. And I think that terrifies us. And I think that we need to embrace that. Because to think and imagine that human the human race is A going to survive or B going to be the superior species forever is just absurd to me
1: is what I'm understanding from you that in order for us to really not just survive but also thrive into this future or these multiple futures that are available we need to embrace our deeper interconnection with the natural world or are you imagining us practicing humility as a species with reverence to technology as well
0: yeah I think the latter I think we need to reconcile what it means to change and what it means to die I actually think that ultimately what we're afraid of is our own demise Yes, on, on
1: many levels.
0: Yeah, but I think we need to embrace that in like a positive way. When we think about the future or possible futures, if we imagine every future with us, A in it and B as the dominant species, we are going to experience a lot of anxiety in the next 100 years plus. Right. But if we imagine futures as one where One possibility is that there's a return to nature as superior, right? Like it's, Mm -hmm. we follow nature's lead. There's one possibility where AI takes over the world. There's one possibility where there's like a utopia and we somehow figure out how to harmoniously exist with both nature and technology in order for us to imagine and embrace all of these possible futures, we need to be okay with the one where we don't exist or are not in charge.
1: So you're talking about a kind of a deep surrender in a way. (laughs) And is it in this surrender that you're describing where we imagine all these possible futures, is it that the surrender to the thing that we are most afraid of will liberate us? and that that would catalyze deeper imagination and creative collaborative power? Or is it that the surrender is opening us into something different?
0: No, it's exactly what you said. It's like, if I've surrendered, there's a certain level of trust that I'm building in the co-creation process with the universe and the collective. And in that surrender, in that facing confronting transmuting the fear i am connecting or reconnecting with my potential to create because i do believe that the fear is going to stand in the way of us actually being able to create the worlds we want and so if the fear is embraced and the surrender happens I think there's a higher chance of us being able to, and I don't like the word utopia. I think there's always going to be a range of experiences, but I do think that we're going to see more justice and equity and more love and liberation in the world.
1: I think that that makes sense that in a way, the practice that I'm hearing you articulate is a metabolizing of fear to open us up into our greater potential. And that that potential, would put us in a place to be more deeply interconnected in the world with all the things as they exist. Is that fair to say? Precisely. Oftentimes, when I think about the technologically transforming world that we belong to, I feel like the risk for humanity is that we allow ourselves to become so hypnotized by technology, that we actually drain our power and are unable to think for ourselves. And when I imagine a future, as you're describing, where there's hope for humanity and there's hope for Mother Nature and the ecosystem that we're a part of and the river that's flowing in the metaphorical sense, I feel like the people who gain strength are the ones who still have their own ability to not just think clearly without being in a constant state of distraction, but to then actually tune in in that deeper way to connect to their liberated, loving creator selves, or their thinking really clearly and using the information around them to contribute to co-creating something. And I feel like my own sense of hope for the future Is grounded in people actually deepening that awareness. Being tuned into your intuition, being tuned into your consciousness is what actually creates the ability to then move into those futures that you're talking about, where we can both leverage the tools and resources that are available and co create that oneness or that interconnection, as opposed to becoming sort of zombieified and not realizing what's happening. Mm
0: -hmm. Yeah. I think the, the phrase that comes to mind for me is like anything in excess will eventually destroy us. Mm -hmm. Whether that's scrolling or manufacturing too many things, like it's, it's eventually going to destroy us. And so what I see happening and what generally tends to happen is you know, we love shiny objects, like you said, like we, mm-hmm. we tend to be attracted to technology in like almost an excessive way. And there's then there's always counterculture that's created. So I think I wrote this on my newsletter, but essentially, like, when there is a radical shift, when there is a revolution, there's going to be like people who go left and people who go right and mm-hmm. so when when the dominant culture goes one way there's going to be countercultures that are created and somewhere between these kind of two paths and each of them like sprout in different ways right it's not just like two paths but there's like two directions somewhere in between those two like the new world or the next world gets shaped yes and so, while i think there will be Massive, massive groups of people who will be like adopting new technologies. I also think there's going to be a massive group of people who won't and who will want to sink more into nature and our kind of ancient ways of being. And I think that both are necessary. And I hope that we can get to a point as a species that we don't have to be so extreme in order to kind of create the next thing, but there's just so much duality in our universe and in our essence that I think that, that like might be unavoidable. Mm -hmm. So I think where intuition plays a role is like tuning into the direction that you feel most called to and tuning into the direction where you feel you can best serve.
1: I love that. I know we have so many listeners who feel like they're on the brink of a transformation or they know what they want to bring into the world and yet aren't quite sure where to begin. How do you feel in your body and in your heart and soul before you birth a new project?
0: Mm -hmm. I generally feel exhilarated and terrified before birthing anything the practice that I've cultivated is one that does not create space for me to overthink because as a creative person, if I start to think about something too much and try to figure it all out before I've catalyzed the process of Mm co-creation, generally it leads me down the path of, I don't think this is a good idea or like, I think this is going to be too much work. Like I can talk myself out of it. Right. I really do practice the 30 seconds of courage. And I really, really believe in kind of Elizabeth Gilbert's big magic thesis that ideas and visions don't belong to us. They're kind of floating in the ether and they connect with us in moments of clarity, and then they move on and they go to somebody else who has that clarity and is willing to action them. And so I think that that 30 seconds of courage, when you have that creative idea, it's like everything in the universe is co-created. So in in my world, if something is going to come to life, then the process of co-creation needs to happen as soon as physically possible, as soon as possible. It needs to be in that process. It needs to be catalyzed. There needs to be momentum around it. And It generally goes down the path of not being what you initially thought it was going to be, but that's the entire point of the creative process. This thing is going to transform and you're going to transform. And then the outcome will be wildly different than what you thought, or the process by which you took will be wildly different than what you thought. And I'm not talking about like cookie cutter, like let's make a blockbuster film that there's a formula and we know it's going to do really well. I'm talking about the deep, deep, artistic, creative, natural, essential process that's accessible to all of us, right? Not manufactured.
1: And transformative change. When I hear what you're saying, I feel deeply that it also applies to systems change work.
0: Yes. In order for us to create futures, we need to be able to connect with the deepest parts of ourselves that are inherently creative. If you don't think people are creative, go spend a few days with like kids. (laughs) And I know you know this because you have two beautiful children. Watch how they exist in the world. Like that's where we all came from. We all came from creativity and connection and curiosity and play. And so we're just going from playing with blocks to playing with systems. We're going from having gibberish conversations that maybe there's (laughs) like a baby language where it actually makes sense to trying to have a shared language that encompasses all of our individual unique lived experiences so that we can actually meet somewhere and do this thing together. And this thing is this life, you know, like Mm -hmm. build this life, build this future together. And so I see it as, going back to what you said earlier, I see it as a remembering Mm -hmm. and the entire thing end to end
1: is a creative process. Thank you. That really resonates for me. And I think that that's the perfect, perfect ending note for this conversation, which I know you and I could spend hours going deeper and deeper and, and following so many different threads, but I love that. And I adore you. So thank you so much for coming on today and for sharing some of your story and so much of your wisdom and creative power with us.
0: Mm. Well, thanks for the invitation and for the love and labor and for putting this thing out into the world. I know it takes a tremendous amount of effort and we, I speak for all of us now, <laughs> we <laughs> appreciate your curiosity and your creativity and the spaces that you're
1: holding for all of these conversations and the way that you're sharing them with the world. Thank you. To our audience, I want to say thank you so much for listening to today's episode. I hope you enjoyed. If you like what you're listening to, please subscribe, share, or click the notification button on your podcast platform. For those listening on Apple Podcasts, I would be so grateful for a five-star rating and a written review. This will also make it easier for other listeners to find the show. If you want to connect with me more, please join me on Substack. I will be posting longer form written pieces about my intuitive changemaker journey, as well as bonus audio content and having online discussions with the intuitively aligned podcast community. You can also find me through Instagram at Rebecca yes that's Rebecca without an A on the end, or through my website www.sydneybloom.com. I also want to give a shout out to our podcast producer Wilson Lynn, and I want to thank you again for joining me on this journey. I can't wait for you to hear the next episode.